0: Can't get enough trivia? Smarty Pants Monthly is 100 fun questions on an honor system. It's basically an entertaining take-home midterm, all about stuff in which you're actually interested. Take an hour or so in the last Saturday of every month, send your results back to Smarty Pants, and see how you did. Most people play on their own, but you can also be on a pair or on a team. That's what we did one night while we were actually physically at a pub quiz, and it was a blast. The questions range from instigates to head scratchers, and you'll definitely learn some things along the way. Go to TriviaHallOfFame.com and sign up for the email at the Smarty Pants link. The next one's coming out soon. You'll get the PDF files on Wednesday, May 22nd. And want some advice? Even if you think you don't know an answer, look for clues and take a guess. That's triviahallofame.com and sign up at the Smarty Pants link.
1: Hello and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. I, I am very excited for our second installment yes. of Mythology May.
0: And I already forgot how the song yeah, me went. Me too.
1: <laughs> so we're, we're going to insert <laughs> it right here Mythology, Mythology May. And then uh, here we go. So I know, good. You
0: guys are so excited uh, to learn more about. A certain type of mythology. Yes, I am. So um, I picked one that maybe we're not as familiar with. Oh, okay. And doesn't have as many parallels with the European ones that we have learned about in the past. Okay. And we'll learn more about it in, in the, the future. future. <laughs> but um, I thought this was a fun one to, to tackle this week. So um, this week I am talking about animal heads and gods of the dead, Egyptian mythology. I'm so excited. So, you know, a little background. Please. Egyptian culture has been heavily influenced by ancient Egyptian mythology. It inspired religious rituals and provided the ideological basis for kingship. So, scenes and symbols from myth appeared in Art in tombs, temples, and on amulets. In literature, myths, or at least elements of them, were used in stories ranging from humor to allegory, showing that the Egyptians adapted mythology for a variety of purposes. Um, So these myths appear frequently in Egyptian writings and art, particularly in short stories and in religious materials such as hymns, ritual texts, funerary texts, and temple decoration. However, these sources rarely contain a complete account of a myth and often only describe brief fragments. So really everyone like in modern times is just piecing together what they can from remnants of the written record. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So these sources often only contain allusions to events and texts that contain actual narratives tell only portions of a larger story. So Egyptian myths are primarily metaphorical, translating the essence and behavior of deities into terms that humans can understand. So less like Aesop's fables here and more like here's bits and pieces about the people that are ruling different okay p- parts of your life. Mm-hmm. So many gods appear in artwork from the early dynastic period of Egypt's history. So that's about 3100 to 2686 BC. But little about the gods' actions can be gleaned from these sources because, again, they include minimal writing. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians began using writing more extensively in the Old Kingdom in which appeared the first major source of Egyptian mythology, the Pyramid Texts. So the pyramid texts are a collection of several hundred incantations inscribed in the interiors of pyramids beginning in the 24th century BC. Oh my God. They were the first Egyptian funerary texts intended to ensure that the kings buried in the pyramid would pass safely through to the afterlife. Written in Old Egyptian, the pyramid texts were carved onto the subterranean walls and sarcophagi of pyramids at Saqqara from the end of the 5th dynasty and throughout the 6th dynasty of the Old Kingdom into the 8th dynasty of the 1st Intermediate Period. And the oldest of the texts have been dated to about 2400 to 2300 BC. These pyramid texts were preserved only for the pharaoh and were not illustrated. They were just Uh, just text, basically. And Mm -hmm. many of the incantations allude to myths related to the afterlife, including creation myths and the myth of Osiris, which we will get to in a bit. Many of the texts are likely much older than their first known written copies, and they therefore provide clues about the early stages of Egyptian religious belief. Um, During the first intermediate period, which is about 2100 to 2055 BC. The pyramid texts developed into the coffin texts. <gasps> yeah. Ooh. Which contains similar material and were available to non-royals. So oh. the pyramid texts were like pharaohs only. The coffin texts Available to, to to those those who weren't in the in the pharaoh's realm. Okay, so ordinary Egyptians who could afford a coffin had access to these okay. funerary spells, and the pharaoh no longer had exclusive rights to the afterlife, as the modern name of this collection of some one thousand one hundred eighty five spells implies. They were mostly inscribed on Middle Kingdom coffins, which is about twenty fifty to seventeen ten BC. They were also sometimes written on tomb walls, stelae canopic chests, papyri, and mummy masks. So basically, it seems like they thought if you died Mm -hmm. and you were going to go to the afterlife, you needed some instructions on how to do that. Sure. So that's why the pharaohs got their things on the wall. Yeah. And then inside your coffin, by the way, whenever you
1: decided that
0: you needed to, it was your
1: time to move on, Mm -hmm. you had instructions
0: on what to do. That's very
1: smart. (laughs) I mean, there should be more instructions just period in life <laughs> about how to do things. Just written all over everything. Everything on the inside of your arms. Yeah, <laughs> definitely in your car. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> like, um, Yeah.
0: So later funerary texts like the Book of the Dead in the New Kingdom and the Books of Breathing from the late period, oh, that's, that's so 664 cool. to 323 BC and after developed out of these earlier collections. So talking a bit more about the Book of the Dead and I'm mm-hmm. using like, Air quotes quotes here, Mm -hmm. Book of the Dead. Book is the closest term to describe the loose collection of texts containing magic spells intended to assist a dead person's journey through the duat or underworld, that's D-U-A-T, and into the afterlife. There is no single or canonical Book of the Dead. So the surviving papyri that are like considered to be this category, um, contain a varying selection of religious and magical texts and vary in their illustrations. So some people seem to have commissioned their own copies where they could kind kind of like pick and choose the spells that they thought most vital in their own progression to the afterlife. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And the Book of the Dead was most commonly written in hieroglyphic or hieratic script on a papyrus scroll and often illustrated with vignettes depicting the deceased in their journey into the afterlife. Awesome. Yeah. So three important symbols related to all this. Um, The Ankh, the Jed, and the Was. So the Ankh, A-N-K-H, symbolizes life. Um, And when you see that symbol, it's like a cross with a looped Mm -hmm. top. The Jed, the D-J-E-D, means stability. And that symbol is a column with a broad base. And then at the top are four parallel lines. So it almost looks like a piece from a chess set. Oh, okay. With four parallel lines at the top. Okay. Um, And the WAS um, stands for power. It is a scepter staff that's topped with the head of a canine. So those are three common symbols that... um, that kind of show up throughout Egyptian mythology. Um, and another important symbol is the scarab. Oh, sure. So yeah. I know that we all know that this, you know, oh, the scarab, oh, it's part of jewelry, it's on an amulet, it's, beautiful. it's in the, you know, it's depicted on this tube. But do we all know why the Egyptians like the scarab so much? I mean, I thought it was because they roll some poop. Yeah. It's, it represents a dung beetle, mm-hmm. which is has come to be associated with the gods because it rolled its dung into a ball in which it laid its eggs. And then the dung then served as food for the young when they hatched. So in this way, they symbolize that life came from death.
1: I mean, I feel like the poop thing really takes all of the mysticism out of it. You know what I mean? But who am I? I'm not yeah. an ancient Egyptian. I mean, it's a very pretty symbol, Oh, I guess. and they're beautiful. They got nice that blue-green. Oh. Gorgeous. <laughs>
0: So temples whose surviving remains date mainly from the New Kingdom and later are another important source of myth. So many temples had a per-onk or temple library for storing papyri for rituals and other uses. And some of these papyri contain hymns, which in praising a god for its actions often refer to the myths that define those actions. And other temple papyri describe rituals, many of which are based partly on myth. Scattered remains of these papyrus collections have survived to the present. And it is possible that the collections include more systemic records of myths, but no evidence of such texts have survived. Um, Mythological texts and illustrations similar to those on temple papyri also appear in the decoration of temple buildings. And also remember local cults of various deities developed theologies centered on their own patron gods. So like every city or settlement kind of like had its own God that they were like basing on. So a lot of, a lot of different places covering different, different gods. Sounds complicated. Yeah. One more concept. So the Egyptian concept, M-A-A-T, refers to the fundamental order of the universe in Egyptian belief. So established at the creation of the world, Mott distinguishes the world from the chaos that preceded and surrounds it. Uh, Mott encompasses both the proper behavior of humans and the normal functioning of the forces of nature, both of which make life and happiness possible. Because the actions of the gods govern natural forces and myths express those actions, Egyptian mythology represents the proper functioning of the world and the sustenance of life itself. So to the Egyptians, the most important human maintainer of Mot is the pharaoh. In myth, the pharaoh is the son of a variety of deities. And as such, he is their designated representative, obligated to maintain order in human society, just as they do in nature and to continue the rituals that sustain them in their activities. That's, that's a, a he- lot of responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> that's a heavy
1: burden to bear.
0: I'm going to yeah. say. Yes. So the creation myths in the Egyptian realm. Yeah. According to different parts of Egypt, the world and Egypt was created in a few different ways, depending on your source. Mm -hmm. The different creation myths have some elements in common, but each associated with the cult of a particular god in one of the major cities of Egypt, which were Hermopolis, Heliopolis, Memphis, and Thebes. The main gist of each one of these accounts is that one main creator, such as Atom, Ptah, or Amon, appeared and then created some new gods. So possibly the most common story is one that came from Heliopolis. And that's what I'm talking about here. All right, great. So... In Heliopolis, the creation was attributed to Atom, who was said to have existed in the waters of Nu as an inert potential being. Atom is portrayed as both a creator and father to the king and is one of the most important and frequently mentioned deities from earliest times, as evidenced by his prominence in the pyramid texts. In the Heliopolitan creation myth, Atom was considered to be the first god, having created himself, sitting on a mound, which they call a benben, uh, from the primordial waters, Nu, Um, These elements were likely inspired by the flooding of the Nile River each year and the receding floodwaters left fertile soil in their wake. So the Egyptians may have equated this with the emergence of life from the primordial chaos. Oh, yeah. Um, And then the imagery of a pyramidal mound derived from the highest mounds of earth emerging as the river receded. A product of the energy and matter contained in this chaos, he created his children, the first deities, out of loneliness. Um, Atum produced from his own sneeze um, (laughs) or also... From some accounts, his own semen. So oh. this is like, ugh. Mm. anyway, Atom oh. created from his own sneeze or semen. <laughs> Unclear.
1: Those are very <laughs> distinctly different places to get a son. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. But who am I? I'm no so one. So
0: out of this, whatever goo this was, came Shu, the god of air. That's S H
1: U. Is it like a <laughs> <laughs> No,
0: no. They said that the names came from the sound. No,
1: get yeah. Out. Stop it. Yeah.
0: Are you serious? Right. I am. So <sighs> Shu is the god of air. S H U. And Tefnut is the goddess of moisture.
1: No, stop it. No,
0: you are trolling. I me. am not trolling <laughs> you. <laughs> Chef and te-
1: Shu and Tefnut <laughs> came from atoms. Sneeze. Own, semen. Semen yep. sneeze. Oh my yep. God. Whichever, you know. Yeah. Yep. Pick your point. I got gotcha.
0: you. Uh, so, this brother and sister, curious about the primeval waters that surrounded them, went to explore the waters and they disappeared into the darkness. Unable to bear his loss, Atom sent a fiery messenger called the Eye of Ra to find his children. The tears of joy he shed upon their return were the first human beings. Atom is usually depicted as a man wearing either the royal headcloth or the dual white and red crown of Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, reinforcing his connection with kingship. Uh, Sometimes he is also shown as a serpent. Um, So after they were created, Shu and Tefnut coupled to produce the Uh. earth god Geb and the sky goddess Nut, who (laughs) defined the limits of the world. So Shu... He is the father of Geb and Nut, also the god of air. He was given the job of keeping Nut and Geb apart. And this is why the sky is so far above the earth. The god oh. of wind stays between them, keeping his daughter from visiting her love on the earth. Um, Shu is usually not pictured because he is invisible like the wind. Sure. I, not because people couldn't remember what he was supposed to look like. <laughs> oh. They were like, oh, this he's invisible. That's why yeah. he's not in this Hello. picture. <laughs> I didn't forget to put him in there. Uh, Again Tefnut is the mother of Geb and Nut Uh, (laughs) She's the deity of moisture Moist air, dew, and rain Uh, Tefnut is a lionine deity And often appears as a human with a lioness head Oh okay So Geb and Nut Uh, Mm. The god of the earth Geb was one of the first gods to appear from the sea of chaos At the beginning of time He appears as a man made of earth With rivers, forests, and hills across his entire body Um, It it was believed that earthquakes Were the laughter of Geb
1: That's kind of cool
0: And Nut um, was Geb's wife but also a sister. Um, she was the goddess of the sky. So she appeared as a woman with skin like a starry sky, dark blue and covered in constellations. She's often pictured stretching over Geb as the sky stretches over the earth. Um, so although Geb and Nut loved each other very much, Ra had a prophecy that their children would try to overthrow him someday. So Ra did his best to keep him apart. And oh, I see. We'll talk more about Ra in a little bit. All right. Um, Osiris was the first son of Geb and Nut. Um, Osiris was a wise god and a good pharaoh when he took over the world From Ra. Osiris taught man about farming and created the first cities in Egypt. He appears as a king with blue skin and white robes for a reason, which we will get into shortly. Isis, um, she is Osiris's wife and the goddess of magic, and she was a clever and ambitious woman. Isis is often pictured as a beautiful woman with multicolored wings. Isis is also represented with a throne on her head and sometimes shown breastfeeding the infant Horus. Mm. In this manifestation, she was known as the mother of God. So to the Egyptians, she represented the ideal wife and mother, loving, devoted, and caring. Mm. You have Set or Seth. I've seen it kind of spelled both both ways, ways. either S-E-T or S-E-T-H. Is the god of the desert, storms, and evil. So uh, Set was pretty much Your textbook bad guy His color was red The color of sterile soil And the desert Set was the strongest Of the gods And very tricky In the old days He sailed on Ra's boat And helped defend The sun god From the armies of chaos And serpent Apep Set is usually pictured With red skin And the head of an Unknown animal demon Which appears to be A hybrid of a dog And an anteater Oh, we also have Nephthys, N-E-P-H-T-H-Y-S. She is the river goddess, the wife of Set and the sister of Isis. Together with Isis, she was a protector of the dead and they are often shown together on coffin cases with winged arms. She was a kind and gentle goddess and the mother of Anubis, the god of funeral rites. Mm. Um, so... Basically, among this creation myth, um, it represented the process by which life was made possible. So these nine gods were grouped together theologically as the Aeneid, E-N-N-E-A-D. But the eight lesser gods and all other things in the world were ultimately seen as extensions of Atom. So Atom is the main one. Mm-hmm. Then you have um, Shu and Tefnut, yep. Geb and Nut, yep, Osiris, Geben-Nut. Isis, Set, Nephthys. There's your There's your main ones. Okay. Okay. Um, Again, like we only have like little fragments of stories from things. But here's one of the, the stories that we do know about the reign of Ra. So in the period of the mythic past after the creation, Ra dwells on earth as king of the gods and humans. Uh, this period is the closest thing to a golden age in Egyptian tradition, the period of stability that the Egyptians constantly sought to evoke and imitate. The stories about Ra's reign focus on conflicts between him and forces that disrupt his rule, reflecting the king's role in Egyptian ideology as enforcer of Mat. So Ra is the god of the sun. Uh, he was the first pharaoh of the world back in the days when gods inhabited Egypt. Each day, Ra's golden sunship would sail across the sky, and each night it would travel through the underworld of the Duat, sailing the river of darkness and fighting off monsters. The Egyptians celebrated each sunrise when Ra emerged victorious again and caused a new day to begin. After many centuries, Ra became old and senile and retreated into the heavens, giving up his throne to Osiris. In one story with differing versions, some of the gods defied Ra's authority, and he destroyed them with help and advice of other gods like Thoth and Horus. At one point, he faced descent even from an extension of himself, the Eye of Ra, which can act independently of him in the form of a goddess. Oh God. So, the Eye of Ra. This is a being in ancient Egyptian mythology that functions as a feminine counterpart to the sun god Ra and a violent force that subdues his enemies. Oh my god. Yeah, this is crazy. The eye is an extension of Ra's power equated with the disc of the sun, but it also behaves as an independent entity which can be personified by a wide variety of Egyptian goddesses. So the eye goddess acts as mother, sibling, consort and daughter of the sun god. She is his partner in the creative cycle in which he begets the renewed form of himself that is born every dawn. The eye's violent aspect defends ra against the agents of disorder that threaten his rule and this dangerous aspect of the eye goddess is often represented by a lioness or by the uraeus or cobra a symbol of protection and royal authority the disastrous effects when the eye goddess rampages out of control and the efforts of the gods to return her to a benign state are a prominent motif in egyptian mythology so wow you got ra and like whenever he's like uh, we gotta fix this problem he sends the eye of Ra to like go take care of things and then but sometimes you know sometimes she gets a little cranky it's just, she doesn't like being told what to do and sometimes she goes and does stuff
1: on her own huh so she is her own thing I always thought the eye of Ra yeah. was just like like a concept like yeah. the eye of Ra yeah. is on you right. kind of thing that's
0: crazy right and So at one point, the eye goddess becomes angry with Ra and runs away from him, wandering wild and dangerous in the lands outside Egypt. But weakened by her absence, Ra sends one of the other gods to retrieve her, um, either by force or by persuasion. And upon her return, the goddess becomes the consort of Ra or of the god who has retrieved her and caused the floodwaters to rise. Oh. As Ra grows older and weaker, humanity, too, turns against him. In an episode called The Destruction of Mankind, related in the Book of the Heavenly Cow, uh, Ra discovers that humanity is plotting rebellion against him and sends his eye to punish them. So she slays many people, but Ra apparently decides he doesn't want her to destroy all of humanity. So he has beer dyed red to resemble blood and spreads it over the field. The eye goddess drinks the beer, becomes drunk, and ceases her rampage. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Ra wow. then withdraws into the sky, weary of ruling on Earth, and begins his daily journey through the heavens and the Duat. The surviving humans are dismayed, and they attack the people among them who plotted against Ra. So, this event is the origin of warfare, death, and humans' constant struggle to protect Maat from the destructive actions of other people. Oh, that's interesting. We also have the Osiris myth. This is like the this is like the big the big one in, okay. in it, the Egyptian mythology. The Osiris myth. Um, It is the most elaborate and influential story. It concerns the murder of the god Osiris, a primeval king of Egypt, and its consequences. So at the start of the story, Osiris rules Egypt, having inherited the kingship from his ancestors in a lineage stretching back to the creator of the world, Ra. His queen is Isis, who, along with Osiris and Set, is one of the children of the earth god Geb and the sky goddess Nut. Uh, Little information about the reign of Osiris appears in Egyptian sources. The focus is on his death and the events that follow. So, Osiris is connected with life-giving power, righteous kingship, and the rule of Mott. Um, some versions of the myth provide Set's motive for killing Osiris. Spoiler. His brother, Set, kills him. <gasps> so according to a spell in the pyramid text, Set is taking revenge for like Osiris kicked him at some point or something. Oh my god. I don't know. Such a little uh, brother thing, but to then do. in another text, Set's grievance is that Osiris had sex with Nephthys, who is Set's consort, and okay. that also makes sense. they're both their sisters. Um, So the murder itself is frequently alluded to, but never clearly described. I see. They just know like there's the four brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. um, Osiris set, Nephthys and Isis, and then set murders Osiris. Osiris. Yeah. Uh, The Egyptians believed that written words had the power to affect reality. So they avoided writing directly about profoundly negative events such as Osiris's death.
1: Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's really cool. But then that gives a huge gap in, <laughs> yes.
0: in the record. Yeah. Yes.
1: Hmm. hmm. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> Um, so by the end of the New Kingdom, a
0: tradition had developed that Set had cut Osiris's body into pieces and scattered them across Egypt. Uh, cult centers of Osiris all over the country claimed that the corpse or particular pieces of it were found near them. The dismembered parts could be said to number as many as 42, each piece being equated with one of the 42 gnomes or provinces in Egypt. Oh. Gnomes, N-O-M-E-S, not G, and oh yes yeah. um, thus the god of kingship becomes the embodiment of his kingdom so Osiris' death is followed either by an interranium or by a period in which Set assumes the kingship meanwhile Isis was searching for her husband's body with the aid of her sister Nephthys in the new kingdom when Osiris's death and renewal came to be associated with the annual flooding of the Nile that fertilized Egypt the waters of the Nile were equated with Isis's tears of mourning and or with Osiris's bodily fluids oh yeah. Lots of fluids. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, Osiris basically represented the life giving divine power that was present in the river's water and in the plants that grew after the flood. The goddesses find and restore Osiris's body, often with the help of other deities, including Thoth, a deity credited with great magical and healing powers, and Anubis, the god of embalming and funerary rites. Osiris becomes the first mummy. So, they, so oh. they went and they found all the pieces of his mm-hmm. body and they put them back together, kind of, and... Wrapped him up. And wrapped him up. Uh, it was basically the gods' efforts to restore his body are the mythological basis for Egyptian embalming practices, which sought to prevent and reverse the decay that follows death. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this part of the story is often extended with episodes in which Set or his followers try to damage the corpse and Isis and her allies must protect it. Once Osiris is made whole, wow. Isis... Manages to conceive his son and oh, rightful no. heir, Horace. Oh no. <laughs> Without getting into anything. Nope. Uh they put his body back together and then she Boo. gets pregnant boo Um boo. So,
1: <laughs> Osiris's
0: revival is apparently not permanent, and after this point in the story, he's only mentioned as the ruler of the Duat, the mysterious realm of the dead. Although he lives on only in the duat He and his kingship, he stands for well, in a sense, be reborn in his son. So Osiris is depicted like with that blue skin oh, and yeah. like because he's dead. Because he's dead. Because he's dead. <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. In Egyptian accounts, the pregnant Isis hides from Set to whom the unborn child is a threat and in a yeah. thicket of papyrus in the Nile Delta. So in this thicket, Isis gives birth to Horus and raises him and hence it is also called the Nest of Horus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Horus is also called the Avenger. He was the son of Isis and Osiris. His symbol was the falcon or hawk and he is often pictured as a man with a falcon's or hawk's head. Um, so, at the next phase of this myth begins when the adult Horus challenges Set for the throne of Egypt. Their struggle encompasses a great number of separate episodes and ranges in character from violent conflict to a legal judgment by the assembled gods. In one important episode, Set tears out one or both of Horus's eyes, which are <laughs> later restored by the healing efforts of Thoth or Hathor. For this reason, the eye of Horus is a prominent symbol of life and well being in oh, Egyptian iconography. Right. So, because Horus is a sky god with one eye equated with the sun and the other with the moon, the Destruction and restoration of the single eye explains why the moon is less bright than the sun. Oh, the Eye of Horus, also known as Wadjet or Ujat, is a traditional symbol of protection, royal power, and good health. It's an eye with a long, straight, like eyeliner extension, mm-hmm. with the eyebrow kind of drawn above it, and like a ski slope curving up from left under the eye, terminating in kind of a teardrop coming straight down from the corner of the eye. Mm-hmm. So you've seen this symbol. Yeah. it's called the Eye of Horus. Do not confuse that with the Eye of Ra, which is just kind of like a sun disk.
1: Oh, but okay. the, yeah,
0: the Eye of Horus is the kind of like traditional Egyptian eye imagery you see Mm uh funerary amulets were often made in the shape of the eye of horus and the symbol was intended to protect the pharaoh in the afterlife and to ward off evil after avenging his father's death um basically he he challenges his uncle seth and um defeats him and he becomes the new pharaoh of egypt yay Mm -hmm. um so afterward all mortal pharaohs considered themselves to be descendants of horus okay Horace took the Heka and the Nakaka, which are the crook and flail of his father to represent the legitimacy of his reign. And these symbols have been identified with the kings of Egypt ever since. So um if you kind of you can picture the tomb of Tutankhamun, maybe you've you've seen this this yes. sarcophagus. He has a crook that's like a curved staff for shepherds mm-hmm. that stands for kingship, and the flail um is like a big long stick uh,
1: kind of like so, a cat of nine tails kind of thing um,
0: it's not even a whip it's more like just like a stick oh, it was okay. meant to herd goats and also also do something with like um, farming a specific type of shrub so it oh, stands okay. for the fertility of the land so when you see the you know, when you see a pharaoh's tomb and he has the, his arms are crossed and he's mm-hmm. holding a, a crook in one hand and like another staff in the other that's what this is the crook and the flail from, oh, from cool. Horace Here are some other gods and goddesses that you've probably heard of. Great. Um, Okay. In alphabetical order. Amun, he is the chief Theban deity whose power grew as the city of Thebes grew from an unimportant village in the old kingdom to a powerful metropolis in the middle and new kingdoms. He rose to become the patron of the Theban pharaohs and was eventually combined with the sun god, Ra, who had been the dominant deity of the old kingdom to become Amun-Ra, king of the gods and ruler of the great Ennead. Okay. So you've probably heard of Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra. And that's just mm-hmm. like they're putting them both together. Together. Amun's name means hidden one, mysterious of form, and although he is most often represented as a human wearing a double plumed crown, sometimes he's depicted as a ram or a goose. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Uh, The implication is that his true identity can never be revealed. Uh, Karnak was Amun's chief temple, but his fame extended well beyond the boundaries of Egypt and his cult spread to Ethiopia, Libya, and throughout much of Palestine. The Greeks thought he was an Egyptian manifestation of their god, Zeus. Mm. And even Alexander the Great thought it worthwhile consulting the Oracle of Amun. That's cool. Anubis, I've, you've heard his name before too. Uh, Anubis is usually pictured as a man with a jackal's head leading a departed spirit through the duat. Uh, the god of funerals and protector of the dead, um, he helped prepare the soul for the afterlife and escorted the dead to the Hall of Judgment. Uh, Greek writers from the Roman period of Egyptian history designated that role as that of psychopomp, which is a Greek term meaning guide of souls. Oh, yeah. That they used to refer to their own god, Hermes, who played that role in Greek oh, religion. Oh, right, right. Okay. So a psychopomp is somebody that's guiding the souls. Anubis was also guardian of the scales. That meant he weighed the heart of the deceased to determine whether the person was worthy of entering the realm of the dead. By weighing the heart against Mott, which is often depicted by an ostrich feather, uh, Anubis dictated the fate of the souls. Uh, the, cool. the Egyptians noticed that jackals were often hanging around their graveyards, so they decided that jackals must be Anubis's sacred animals. Priests even wore wooden jackal masks when they prepared a pharaoh's body for mummification. Ooh, oh, wow. In lore, Anubis helped Isis to make Osiris into the first mummy, though archaeologists have identified Anubis' sacred animal as an Egyptian canid, which is an an African golden wolf. Anubis was heavily worshipped because essentially he gave people hope. Uh, Mm. People marveled in the guarantee that their body would be respected at death and their soul would be protected and justly um, judged. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, Bastet B-A-S-T-E-T Is the goddess of cats Who were extremely popular in Egypt Because mm-hmm. they could kill snakes, scorpions And other nasty creatures Bastet was a protective goddess And people would wear amulets With her likeness for good luck Especially during the demon days At the end of each year uh, Yeah Wait, what? I don't, I didn't find out more about that <laughs> I'm sorry I,
1: I, I feel like that's kind of <laughs>
0: Bastet is Depicted as a cat headed woman, often pictured with a knife, fighting the chaos serpent Apep. She was seen as the defender of the king and consequently of the sun god Ra. Cool. Bess, B-E-S, is the god of dwarves, protectors of households, mothers, and children. One of the ugliest and most popular gods in ancient Egypt, uh, ugly but popular, Okay. Bess had the power to scare off evil spirits. He was often appearing on amulets and in sculpture as a hairy little man with a lion-like mane and a pug nose.
1: No, yeah, well, he sounds kind of cute. Egyptians
0: <laughs> believe that dwarves and other people who were born different were inherently magical.
1: Oh. Which is nice I perspective, guess. I yeah, guess. sure.
0: Uh, Bess was considered extremely good luck, and he watched over the common man, children, women. Women in childbirth and anyone else who needed protection from evil. He is often represented f- head on, like full face, rather than oh. in profile. So you'll see a lot of these gods and goddesses like drawn, like in, yeah, in profile, in profile. sideways. Mm-hmm. But Bess is always drawn straight on. Oh, that's kind of interesting. I circuit uh, s e r k e t is the goddess of scorpions, but also fertility, nature, magic, and healing. She could send scorpions after her enemies and a single scorpion bite could kill a human on the other hand, she could also cure scorpion stings and the oh. effects of other venoms. She was pictured as a woman with a giant scorpion for a crown as the protector against venom and snake bites. Cir was often said to protect the deities from Apep, the great snake demon of evil mm. yeah, his name has come up a lot. Sobek, S O B E K, is the god of crocodiles. Um, He's pictured as a crocodile headed man and was both respected and feared. Crocodiles, strong creatures, right? In ancient Egypt, an entire city was named after them Crocodilopolis. No, (laughs) nope. Yep. I it's what? real. It's real. <laughs> and Sobek had a temple with a lake full of crocodiles raised as living incarnations as Sobek. However, crocodiles were fierce and predators mm-hmm. and many Egyptians were killed each year if they got too near the river. Oh no. Um, Sobek's fierceness was able to ward off evil while simultaneously defending the innocent. He was made a subject of personal piety and a common recipient of votive offerings, particularly in the later periods of ancient Egyptian history. His sweat was said to have created the rivers of the world. Oh, ew. Uh, Tweret, T-A-W-E-R-E-T, Tweret is the goddess of hippos. Oh, so while <laughs> the Egyptians were scared of male hippos, they saw the female hippo goddess, Tweret, as a gentle protector. She looked after pregnant women especially and is often depicted with a swollen belly. Like Bess, she would scare off evil spirits. And in fact, many stories, Tweret is the girlfriend of Bess. Aww. So you got this
1: like <laughs>
0: really lucky couple. Yeah. At oh least. yeah, bless them both. And then finally, Thoth. T-H-O-T-H. He is the god of writing and knowledge and was depicted as a man with the head of an ibis holding a scribe's pen and palette or also as a baboon. <laughs> Either or is tough. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Greeks associated him with Hermes and ascribed to him the invention of all the sciences as well as the invention of writing. Oh, cool. He's often portrayed writing or making calculations. Uh, Thoth stands apart from most of the other gods. He was as old as the oldest gods and often acted as an intermediary between gods. He was associated with the moon and is sometimes shown wearing a moon disc and crescent headdress. One of his most important roles was record the deeds of the dead at the day of their judgment and is often seen doing this in the Book of the Dead. That's cool. So there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff about Egyptian mythology. Um, and by the way, in San Jose, California... Is the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. Okay. It holds the largest collection of ancient Egyptian antiquities in the Western United States. What? Like Randomly, We were out in San Jose um, last year for our friend's wedding and had like another day that we were like, oh, what should we go do? So we went to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. It was wild. I bet. It was like the outside of it looks like a temple and it's painted and everything. Yeah. It's beautiful. And so there's all these gardens and then there's like temples outside and then you walk up to like the front door and it's like you're going into this big. Oh my God. And they have, uh, they have like real mummies on display. Like what? Like what? Like, legit mummies on just, like...
1: Oh, my gosh. This,
0: ...what it looks like, and then all all sorts of artwork and amulets and stone and all kinds of stuff. I, I have, wouldn't
1: have expected it. No, I have never heard of this yeah. place. Huh, what a thing. Yep. Well, thank you, Julia, for giving us that that very... What is it with mythology and... um? Oh, that's what I'm looking for. Incest. <laughs> what is with that? Well, they
0: didn't have enough...
1: There weren't enough... People? there weren't enough people
0: <laughs> guess, you gotta somewhere i guess,
1: that's somewhere, it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure i guess anyway either way thank you so much for that and time for the quiz
0: okay the quiz is called walk like an egyptian this is a quiz on all female bands and dance songs question one influenced by the riot girl scene Corinne Tucker, Carrie Brownstein, and Janet Weiss founded what feminist indie rock band whose name is derived from exit 108 of Interstate 5 in Lacey, Washington? Question two. First, it's just a jump to the left and a step to the right. Then with your hands on your hips, you bring your knees in tight. Then the pelvic thrust, which might nearly drive you in. Say yay, and a hip swivel. Do you want to do it again? What participatory dance song is this? Question three. Described as Riverdance for the Voice, which Irish musical ensemble, founded in 2004, has featured a changing cast of talented musicians who sing both traditional tunes and modern songs? You may have seen their PBS musical special from 2005, which helped to propel them to number one on the world music charts for a record 86 weeks. Question four. Finish the song lyrics, also the title of the song. I've got a good job. I work hard for my money. When it's quitting time, I hit the door running. I fire up my pickup truck and let the horses run. I go flying down that highway to the hideaway, stuck out in the woods to do the blank. Question five. Though you may not recognize their 1990 debut album, Thank Heavens for Dale Evans, this band's albums from later that decade included the wildly popular Wide Open Spaces and Fly. Despite a 2003 blacklisting, which group became the top-selling all-female band and biggest-selling country group in the U.S. since 1991? Question six. As of May 2019, which of the following sweet-sounding dance songs would you not be able to request from a DJ? Laffy Taffy, Tootsie Roll, or Gummy Worm? Question seven. This all-girl alt-rock band was the first band to sign on the Beastie Boys indie label Grand Royal in 1992. Their popular albums Fever In, Fever Out and Electric Honey ensured that MTV and VH1 kept a naked eye on the band throughout the 1990s. Following a decade-long break, what band reunited and launched a successful 2012 crowdfunding drive to complete their latest album? Question eight. American songwriters Jerry Goffin and Carole King wrote more than two dozen chart hits, including a brand new dance back in 1962 that had a little bit of rhythm and a lot of soul. Notable for appearing in the American Top 5 in three different decades, what is this dance track that even your little baby sister gave a chance, since it was easier than learning your ABCs? Question nine. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Mom. I'm your cherry bomb. The Runaways were a teenage all-female rock band from the late 1970s whose story inspired the 2010 film of the same name, starring Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning. Avid fans of Jeopardy may get this right away. Can you name me two of the band's former members? And finally, question 10. In 2006, a five-year-old viral video starring motivational speaker Judson Lapley was uploaded to YouTube, showing Lapley covering moves from Elvis Presley through in sync. What was the title of this video? I'll give you about a minute to think, and I'll be back with your answers.
1: Ready, All right. ready to hear these questions I'm again? Gonna, <laughs> I am going to do the best I can. Great. Here we go. Question one. Influenced
0: by the right girl scene, Corin Tucker, Carrie Brownstein, and Janet Weiss founded what feminist indie rock band whose name is derived from exit 108 of Interstate 5 in Lacey, Washington? Is that Slater Kinney? It is Slater Kinney. It's named after Slater Kinney Road, where one of the band's early practice spaces was. Uh, their sound incorporates personal and social themes, along with stripped-down music that was influenced by punk and the free-thinking ideals of the '80s and '90s alternative and indie rock. Slater Kinney have been compared to female singers such as Susie Sue of the Susie Sue and the Banshees, mm-hmm. and also Patty Smith. And they have also named influences such as Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, and Sonic Youth. Question two: First, it's just a jump to the left and a step to the right. Mm-hmm. Then with your hands on your hips, you bring your knees in tight. Then the pelvic thrust, which might nearly drive you, in, say yay, yay, and a hip swivel. Do you want to do it again? What participatory dance song is this?
1: That's the time warp.
0: It is the time warp (laughs) from the Rocky Horror Show and then later the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, The song is both an example and a parody of the dance song genre in which much of the content of the song is given over to the dance step instructions. And it is one of the major audience participation events during screenings of the film and performances of the show.
1: Um, I will say I'm not a theater gal, Mm -hmm. not big into community theater, although I once was in college at a very dark time in my life. And I went to see the Rocky Horror Show and I was wholly unprepared Oh, because I'd seen the movie and I was like, man, whatever. Yeah. And a bunch of my friends and everybody was dressed up and I was in like a cardigan and a pair of jeans. Yeah. And um, you didn't bring any supplies I didn't with bring you. anything. I had no idea what to do. And so um, to entertain myself, I kept yelling at people to tell them to shut up because I was trying to watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Shh, come on. They're trying to do their jobs up there. This is very rude. <laughs> and you weren't like carried out. No. I mean, a lot of the, I knew a lot of the people yeah. there, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But <laughs> still, the time warp, everybody. Let's do the time warp again. Sorry. It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> I like the real high end of that song. Yeah. <laughs> Question three.
0: Described as Riverdance for the Voice, which Irish musical ensemble founded in 2004, has featured a changing cast of talented musicians who sing both traditional tunes and modern songs. You may have seen their PBS musical special from 2005, which helped to propel them to number one on the world music charts for a record 86 weeks.
1: So I'm (laughs) going to go out on a limb here. Is it Celtic Woman? It is Celtic Woman. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The current members
0: are Mairead Carlin, Ava McMahon, Tara McNeil, and Megan Walsh. There's been several others throughout time. Oh, yeah. And they're all and gorgeous. Out. Yeah. Oh, man. And smooth skin with curly hair. Mm. A dream. Question four. Finish the song's lyrics. Also, the title of the song. I've got a good job. I work hard for my money. When it's quitting time, I hit the door running. I fire up my pickup truck and let the horses run. I go flying down the highway to that hideaway, stuck out in the woods to do the
1: blank. Um, I... <laughs> I do not have as uh, strong a back catalog of country music as you do, mm-hmm. Julia. So I have next to no idea. So I'm going to guess the Watusi. And I don't think that's true.
0: It is not the Watusi. Okay. It's the
1: Boot Scootin' Boogie. Oh, my God. I remember that. <laughs> 90s country. <laughs> 80s and 90s country. Oh, oh it's what a, a thing. right in my wheelhouse.
0: Um, so, Boot Scootin' Boogie is by Brooks and Dunn. Though it was first recorded in 1990 by the band Asleep at the Wheel. The song is a tribute to the Texas-style honky-tonks line dancing, and its success is cited as having started a renewed interest in line dancing throughout the U.S. I read this question to Josh earlier in the week, and he... Did Didn't know it all. And he was like, I always forget. You're a little bit country and I'm a little bit rock and roll.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's like the cutest thing I've ever heard. Oh my God. Did I ever tell you that my grandmother taught me how to line dance? No, you never. That never has come up in all of our years of friendship. (laughs) My grandmother taught me how to line dance, and it was (laughs) too. It was to Billy Ray Cyrus's achy, achy breaky, breaky heart. heart. And she um, taught me how to do it. And then she immediately stopped me because I was dancing too sexy. <gasps> yes. I was line dancing at 10 years old. Too, too sexy. sexily, Too sexily. So that. Well, it's a good thing she stopped you because that, who knows? It would have been. Well, it was the beginning of the end of my line dancing career is. <laughs> What happened retired at age ten. Yep. <laughs> so that's a that's a memory that just poof came flooding back. <laughs> I hope there's video. Yeah.
0: Question five. Though you may not recognize their nineteen ninety debut album, Thank Heavens for Dale Evans, this band's albums from later that decade included The Wildly Popular, Wide Open Spaces, and Fly. Despite a two thousand three blacklisting, what group became the top selling all female band and biggest selling country group in the US since nineteen ninety one? That's the Dixie Chicks. It is the Dixie Chicks. Uh, whose members are Natalie Maines Emily Robison, And Marty McGuire um, So the The specific The blacklist event So on March 10th 2003 During a London concert um, Which was also Nine days before The 2003 invasion Of Iraq Natalie Maines Told the audience Quote We don't want this war This violence And we're ashamed That the president Of the United States Is from Texas Which garnered A negative reaction Good And boy. ensuing boycotts In the US Where talk shows Denounced the bands Their albums were discarded In public protests And corporate Jeez. broadcasting Networks blacklisted them For the remainder of the Bush years in 2006 they released taking the long way which featured the song not ready to make nice selling more than 500,000 copies in the first week despite having little or no airplay in areas that had once embraced them um, the Dixie Chicks became the first female band in chart history to have three albums debut at number one so oh, good for them they're still working on stuff oh yeah and uh, if you watch that uh, Taylor Swift music video for um, me you know I they, did
1: they showed up in there which maybe hints at a potential collaboration you know I did you know I did (laughs) and I was like those are the Dixie Chicks they're gonna be on it's just a return to country that's what's gonna happen also Goodbye Earl still slaps oh it's such a great Great song song.
0: there is a there was a great quote that like um, if you're familiar with that Fly album that has um, Goodbye Earl on it which is you know all about killing an abusive um, ex-husband they did another song called um, Sin Wagon which talks about like we're going to do a little mattress dancing. Oh yeah! And um, apparently there were some execs that were like, "Oh, we have to take mattress dancing out. It's it's too it's Sexy. really too obscene." And they were like, "So they were totally fine with like the murder, but they didn't. They wanted to take out the
1: line about mattress dancing." Oh okay, that's it. You know, country. That's why my line dancing career ended. Is that they just censorship is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Question six. As
0: of May 2019 Which of the following Sweet sounding dance songs Would you not be able To request from a DJ Laffy Taffy Tootsie Roll Or Gummy Worm uh, That's Gummy Worm That <laughs> yeah. doesn't exist Gummy Worm <laughs> is fake um, Laffy Taffy is a 2005 song By hip hop group D4L Which reached number one On the Billboard Hot 100 In January 2006 And Tootsie Roll Was a 1994 rap song By The 6 9 Boys Which earned platinum certification And reached number eight On the Billboard charts Great song Yeah Question seven. This all-girl, alt rock band was the first band to sign on the Beastie Boys indie label Grand Royal in 1992. Their popular albums, Fever in, Fever Out and Electric Honey, ensured that MTV and VH1 kept a naked eye on the band throughout the 1990s. Following a decade-long break, what band reunited and launched a successful 2012 crowdfunding drive to complete their latest album? I
1: don't know.
0: Who is this? Who is this band? This band is... Luscious Jackson. Luscious Jackson. Who you probably haven't thought about it in,
1: in oh 10 years. Oh my God. I have not thought about Luscious Jackson in ages. Yeah.
0: So they're probably their biggest song was Naked Eye. And then they okay. also
1: were in like, they were in an episode of Pete and
0: Pete. Uh, they oh showed up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh They definitely showed up in like, mov- like movies and like. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. Pete and Pete. They were in Pete and Pete. I'm losing my mind. I'm, everything's <laughs> coming back. So many memories, Julia.
0: <laughs> so their band's name comes from a now retired American basketball player named Lucius Jackson. Mm, and Lucius clever. Jackson's son, also named Lucius, played for Jim Beheim's Syracuse Orangeman from oh, 1991 hey. to 1995. Oh, orange um, so the band is still active and is composed of Jill Cuniff, Gabrielle Glazer and Kate Schellenbach. So they're still good for them. They're still out there. Question eight. American songwriters Jerry Goffin and Carole King wrote more than two dozen chart hits, including a brand new dance track back in 1962 that had a little bit of rhythm and a lot of soul. Notable for appearing in the American top five in three different decades, what is this dance track that even your little baby sister gave a chance? Since it was easier than learning your ABCs. Is it the locomotion? It is the locomotion. (laughs) I had no idea Carole King
1: wrote the locomotion. (laughs) You know what? But if you think about it, like think of like natural woman think of you know you make the earth move you know like mm-hmm. you're like okay that has a carol king sound yeah. you I know mean, i
0: can maybe i can hear it now but yeah
1: yeah but only like afterwards i know yeah. that's what i mean i just didn't like you didn't know <laughs> no until like, you hear it and you're like oh yeah that's carol king
0: so the locomotion was first released in 1962 by american pop singer little eva whose um, her name is eva boyd she was actually carol king's babysitter Like she worked for the family. Oh, my God. And King and her then husband, Jerry Goffin, had Boyd record the song because they knew she could sing and dance. Um, The other bands to release the song um, to great acclaim were Grand Funk Railroad in 1974 and then Kylie Minogue in 1988. Oh, my
1: God. That one blew up. Yes.
0: Question nine. Hello daddy, hello mom. I'm your ch- ch- cherry bomb. The Runaways were a teenage all-female rock band from the late 1970s whose story inspired the 2010 film of the same name starring Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning. Avid fans of Jeopardy
1: may get this right away. Can you name me two of the band's former members? All right, uh, Joan Jett. Mhm. And oh my god, you know what? At one point or another I have definitely seen these other two women's names. I'm just going to say Lita Ford, and I know that yeah. that's Oh, oh, oh. Yeah she yes. was in oh yes. my god
0: uh-huh. I didn't know Lita Ford was in <laughs> great 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 so there were Lita usually Ford. like five members I mean the band was only you know totally in existence for like three years in yeah. total but yeah, yeah. there were usually five members and then there were some that rotated in so um Joan Jett Sherry Curry Jackie Fox Sandy West Lita Ford also Mickey Steele Vicky Blue Laurie McAllister and Peggy Foster um so, yeah, the main the main five that that most people remember are Joan Jet, Cherry Curry, Jackie Fox, Sandy West, Lita Ford. Um, Jackie Fox, uh, big, big, super, sm- super smart trivia lady was just on Jeopardy last year. And then she's um, been featured in a couple articles. Are recently you serious? About, yeah. Oh, my
1: gosh. <laughs> if you're listening, Jackie, hi. Big fan. Oh, my God. Big fan. I just learned about you just now, but I am instantaneously a huge fan.
0: Um, And one of the members I mentioned, um, Mickey Steele, she went on to become a singer and bassist for the Bangles, whose hits included Walk Like an Egyptian, Manic Monday, and Eternal Flame. Yes. Um, And finally, question 10. In 2006, a five-year-old viral video starring motivational speaker Judson Lapley was uploaded to YouTube showing Lapley covering moves from Elvis Presley
1: through in sync. What was the title of this video? Isn't that history of dance? Or the history of that, uh, dance through the ages, dancing forever, dance. My favorite dances. Um, what is it? You're very you're you're I'm dancing so, so. around it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> what What is it?
0: The evolution of dance. The
1: evolution of dance. Damn it!
0: So um, <sighs> so that one was originally recorded in two thousand one. So evolution of dance two was released in two thousand nine. It started with James Brown's "I Got You, I Feel Good" and made its way beyond the year two thousand adding lean back, london bridge and soldier boy. You know, your favorite dance. Oh my gosh London bridge? Mm-hmm. Oh and my And soldier boy? That's <laughs> I know my brother could do the soldier boy, but
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's like a uh, Yeah, cuz uh, there it was like big when we were in college. You know, that's the thing about like <laughs> like individual in dances that are like soldier
0: boy right now. <laughs>
1: individual dances that are linked to songs is that they age so quickly right like a piece of american cheese it's terrible yes
0: <laughs> and there's also an evolution of dance three which starts with chuck berry's johnny be good and ends with drake's hotline bling
1: which again which is also old now <laughs> yeah. i mean that just came out a couple years ago and it's yep. like boof, the hotline bling dance please yeah what are you my grandfather <laughs> Should I be line dancing to yeah. this? Sexy line dancing to this? So oh yes. There is there's your quiz on all female bands Very and dance great. songs. So good. So good, Jewel. Thank you so much. Um if uh if if you somehow have a video of me sexily dancing, <laughs> to <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus is thank you breaking your heart from, directly to her parents from nineteen ninety five. Please uh feel free to email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet that video uh at <laughs> <laughs> Missinfopod. Um you can post it to our Facebook page, Misinformation Colon uh, Trivia Podcast. Um and also just for fun, you can just go to our website and stream us at uh triple dot com.
0: Um, On our website and on our Twitter, we have a a link to PayPal if you wanted to tip us a few bucks. Um, That'll help us with equipment upgrades and keeping the podcast up and running. also you can listen to us on our website Mm -hmm. and um, pretty much anywhere where you get your podcasts nowadays Um, so please rate review and subscribe tell a friend tell a friend please please.
1: tell a couple of friends I told my students it's great (laughs) yeah and it wasn't even part of their grade no I I actually made sure that I told them at the end of the semester so they would not feel obligated to subscribe to my podcast oh see such ethics yeah and I texted you today earlier that um, I couldn't remember the Word for course evaluations because you know, like, how often do I do that? And uh, I was like, guys, don't forget to and I said, rate, review, and subscribe. And they just like, ah, they lost it. I was like, no, you know what I mean. And they were like, course evaluations, it's like, yeah, exactly. I say rate, review, and subscribe more often than I say course evaluations. They're true, so <laughs> very clearly. And if you're one of my students, do both of those things. So, um
0: so yeah um stay tuned for our next segment in the mythology may so excited month of mayhem oh oh that would have been better forget it we're deleting (laughs) we're starting
1: over let's (laughs) shut it down (laughs) (laughs) all right we will catch you next time (laughs) Bye. bye